0: For more information about Redemption Church, and for additional resources, please visit RedemptionOKC.com. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. As Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What of use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You guys, grab a seat. We're going to jump into this new series called Relentless Grace The Life of Jacob. And kind of as we're getting started back into a new trimester and getting rolling uh, with kickoff Sunday here, I want to make sure you know of a couple things that are available to you uh, as you come in each week uh, either of the tables by the doors on the way out we have what's called a reflection guide and this is something we prepare to, really for you to help encourage you in terms of your understanding of God's word and we just want to serve you and equip you and help you understand kind of what God's word means and how to apply it to your life and so on the front side you've got a reflection guide that just has some other information you can grab one of those each week and just read up as you go and then on the back side there's reflection questions. We Actually, use these for our small groups. So, our small groups, when they meet uh, during the week, actually go through these and just walk through those questions. And really, they're intended to just help you think through all the things we talk about here, but really think through, man, you know, how do I take A book that was written thousands of years ago and make it come to life for me in 2024 as a single person, as a married, as a parent, or uh, you know, as a businessman and woman, like student, what in your context of life, just to reflect and figure out how do you live this out. And so, I hope that you'll take that. Um, Honestly, if I wasn't preaching, I would be grabbing one of those each week and using it to like write notes on, and then keeping those and storing them so I could go back and steal from them later and learn other stuff. And so, just encourage you to do that. I also want to let you know uh, we are going to kick our. uh, New season of our podcast up here in a few weeks as well, and that's just another way that we're going to be talking about the life of Jacob and trying to pour content just to equip you and and help you think through what uh, kind of this passage we're studying in the life of Jacob as well. And so that'll be kicking up in a few weeks, and we'll let you know about that. So be looking for it. Sound good? All right. Well, let's uh, let's look here as we get into the story. We're going to look at the life of Jacob and. Uh, this series is really interesting because when you look at it, think about the life of Jacob, and I don't know how much you've been around church or been around the Bible or how much you're aware of these things, but uh, this is there's some of the most famous images in the Bible that we're going to study over the next few weeks. Not just in the Bible, but honestly, some of the most famous images in all of human literature. These are things that cross cultural boundaries and we see in all kinds of circles. We're going to see Jacob wrestling with the angel. We're going to see uh, the famous stairway to heaven. I know most of us thought that the great theologians Led Zeppelin created that, but... Uh, they actually got it from him. And so Jacob was the originator of the Stairway of Heaven. We're going to look at the coat of many colors. But there's just all these things that are, that are come out of this, this story that we're going to unpack over the next several months. We're going to see Jacob's name change to Israel. And yes, that's the Israel that we're reading about in the news so much today. That Jacob was the founder of that nation and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's still going on today. We're actually going to follow in this story all the way through his family going to Egypt and in Egypt there was a famine or there's a famine out the land and uh, the Israelites all went to Egypt and God through the seed of Jacob preserve and protect his people and that's where the story will end up. So this is going to be this broad sweep where we're going to learn a ton of important stuff to understand the scriptures, but it's not just that. It's not just information that's important for us to understand. It's also important stuff for our transformation important ways that I think God wants to change us and work in each of our lives to work this stuff out. And honestly, what we see in this passage is that God uses messy, sinful people like us to fulfill his plans all the time. Uh, We're going to follow the story of Jacob and Jacob kind of wanders this twisted, crooked path and his life is, is a bit of a mess and he's grasping and striving and deceiving in many ways. And yet in the midst of that, there's also beauty and redemption and blessing. That take place through his life, and so we're gonna we're gonna study that and see how the gospel triumphs as he learns to lean on God and not lean up, not trust merely himself. Um, and that's a struggle we all have, isn't it? That sometimes it's easy for us to think that we know best. Sometimes it's easy for us to think that we know how to work life out and how to navigate it and how to make things happen exactly the way we want them to happen. And and what we get to see in this story is that God uses the messiness of life to bring out this kind of metamorphosis in Jacob's life. And he goes from this driven, ambitious, striving guy who's manipulative in many ways and trying to orchestrate everything in his own strength to a guy who learns to lean on God and limps toward grace of home and trusting, learning to trust the Lord over time. So as we jump into this story here, I've got a question for you that I want you to think about as we kind of begin this series. And this, this question kind of frames the way uh, this whole series is gonna go and just the way we wanna think about begin to think about this. And here's the question. Where are you grasping for goodness, blessing, significance, and meaning rather than leaning on God. I heard a guy years ago ask this question. And it always stuck with me. Where, where is it that you personally are grasping and striving and creating and driving for life and trying to get the good life on your own strength rather than leaning on the Lord to provide it for you? And what I see is that God uses our messy lives oftentimes to move us slowly, sometimes painfully toward maturity as he kind of weans us off of self and helps us learn to lean and trust him. Sound good? Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in here. Father, everything you do, you do because you are love and because you want our good. Father, as we come, as we begin this series, as we dive into your word, would you just, by your spirit, make it come to life? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see more clearly your love for us, that we might trust more deeply the goodness that you want to bring us, that we might trust more fully the timing that we have to depend upon for the good that you will one day bring in the fulfillment of your promises. Father, I pray for each of us in this room that you'd meet us through the study of the series and the, the, the life of Jacob, that we might see our lives in his and see ultimately, your care and your grace through this story, that that might change and transform us. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We are in Genesis chapter 25, and as we work through this text, and as we kind of work through this passage, um, it begins like a lot of the passages in Genesis begin, it says these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, and that's a, a regular way in which the scriptures kind of signal that we're transitioning into a new section, and so we're sort of picking it up mid-story, but we're going to jump into the story of Isaac, and there's a, a bit of a tip in verse 21 where it says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, this is an episode or an example of something that we see oftentimes in Scripture. And I wanted to say at the outset, it's an incredibly tragic thing if you've had to walk through something like this, if you've struggled with infertility, if you've wrestled with this in any way. And I don't want to just run past that. This isn't really what the story is about. This is actually the subtext or the background of the story we're looking at today. But I just want to acknowledge the, the reality that this is an incredibly painful thing. And I've wept with people in this room over these very issues. And I know the reality of all that it is. And what we're going to see is that God somehow meets them in this place. But in this story, if you know your Old Testament, and if you were the Israelites looking back at the story of the Old Testament being unpacked for them, you would have immediately, when you heard Isaac was praying for his wife, Baron, go, oh, like Isaac's mother was also barren Because in the story of Isaac, what we begin to see, and this is kind of the background of everything we're going to build upon, is that Isaac inherits this kind of spiritual heritage that comes from Abraham. And if you grew up in church, you probably know the song about Father Abraham. Had many sons. Had many sons. And now you have the song stuck in your head for the rest of the service, but that's okay. I'm sorry for that. Uh, but, but there's this famous heritage of Abraham who is the father of the nations. And what we know is that Abraham was given this promise from the Lord. The Lord said, you're gonna inherit land, seed, and blessing. The promised land that I'm gonna give you is gonna open up for you and you're gonna move into that land and you're gonna be a great people. And so there's not just land, but there's seed. And by seed, meaning a, a descendants. And you're gonna have as many descendants as there are stars in the heavens. And so you're gonna have this huge promise that's going to come and you're going to be like the stars in the heavens in terms of your descendants and those descendants are going to be a blessing to the entire world. So there's this giant spiritual heritage that Abraham has given and God says you're going to have the promised land and you're going to have this, this this line of descendants and through that line is actually going to come Jesus who through Christ is going to be a blessing to all peoples. So this is the spiritual heritage that Isaac inherited but it's also the spiritual baggage that Isaac inherited. Um, you all know families are messy, right? Like you've been in one, so you know. Uh, you know that sometimes these things get a little, bit, uh, a little bit messy in terms of the way in which they unfold. The, the Bible, one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't really hide the messiness of, of life. And we see that with Abraham. There's this great spiritual heritage Isaac inherits, but Isaac also inherited some spiritual, or, or some spiritual baggage. Because Abraham, honestly, he he didn't trust the promise of God. When God promised and said, I'm going to give you land, seed, and blessing, Abraham and Isaac kept waiting, and they kept waiting, and Sarah kept getting older and kept getting older. In fact, uh, by the time this this promise was done, Isaac's name literally means laughter. Sarah named him Laughter because she's like, God had to do something insanely crazy and stupid to bring this kid around because I'm way too old to bear a child. But while they were waiting for Isaac to come, They didn't trust. They tried to work a shortcut and they tried to work a shortcut. And so uh, Abraham began to add wives in order to try to expedite God's plan. He thought, well, if God's going to give me descendants, he doesn't seem to be doing anything. So maybe I need to go create some descendants and I need to kind of get this thing moving. And so Abraham runs around God and tries to expedite or create a shortcut to get to the blessings and the promises of God. Friends, do you ever do that? Do you ever think, I think God's taking a little too long. I think maybe God's not following through on his thing. I think maybe God's not going to get this done. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of help him out. I'm going to sort of step into the gap of, you know, where God's not doing the thing and I'm going to get it done for him because he needs a little help. Isn't that the problem? Isn't that the problem that we saw in the garden of Eden at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, We're creating the God of Eden. and God said, I'm gonna take care of you and you've got this perfect blessing and I'm gonna walk with you and I'm gonna provide for you and all you have to do is is, is bear my glory and enjoy the creation, enjoy everything I gave you. And then Satan comes along and says, hey, did God really say that? Is God really gonna show up? Is God gonna really do everything he said he did? And he begins to create a shortcut and says, maybe you just try a little bit of this and you can enjoy this and it'll bring a fulfillment of all the promises and maybe you'll get a little something extra. And friends, we do the same thing, don't we? We think we can do a workaround on God because maybe he's a little too slow. Maybe he's not showing up. And that's, that's the heritage that we begin to see when he says, and Isaac prayed, it's interesting. Because Isaac, possibly because of the pain of his family, think about a family that has multiple wives. I mean, think about the mess of your own family, then think about if you multiplied that. You take multiple wives and husbands and that conflict. And then you take multiple kids and the rivalry between all these kids of all these different spouses and all these different things and the, the battles that would go on and just how messy that world would get. That's the house Isaac grew up in. And so when Isaac finds himself in the same place his daddy was in, where his wife was buried, Isaac says, I'm not going to do that because I know the pain all that caused. And so Isaac says, he went and He prayed. And he sought the Lord, and he trusted Him, and God meets them in that place and provides a child. It's interesting; it didn't happen very fast, though, did it? Isaac was how old when they got married? When he got married, he was forty. How old was he? We don't know how old Rebecca was, but how old was he when the kid came? Sixty. And he had to wait. Sometimes it's hard to wait. Yesterday we went to go uh, went to go out to eat in the middle of the afternoon. I thought, man, it's like two o'clock. There'll be no line. We got there; there's a forty minute line. We've literally went and visited two other restaurants, thinking maybe we'll just go get somewhere else that's faster. than we ended up coming back and waiting. Then we go in and we sit down at the table and we're waiting for this pizza to come. And twenty minutes in, after we're sitting there, they come and go. Hey, by the way, one of our one of our ingredients we don't have the one you wanted, so we can't do that. And I looked at Nan when the waiter when the waiter or waitress left and said, "Look, I do not care that I have ingredients. I hate that our pizza's not started yet because I, I don't like to wait." Can you really, like, I, we don't really like to wait for anything. Like, we want, we want immediate satisfaction of all of our desires right now, and we don't want to wait for anything. And that's, they had a 20-year wait. It's interesting, God meets them where they are, but then in this story, Rebecca immediately begins to have this difficulty. She's got twins, and she begins to experience all kinds of pain, and this leads to a whole other spiritual tension, which is, God, if you answered my prayer and gave us a kid, why is it hurt so bad? Why, why is it bringing about all this pain in my life since this is supposed to be your, your provision and your answer for me? But right now all I'm experiencing is hurt. And I don't understand. Remember, this is pre-technology there's no sonograms there's no ability you know and, and my wife had twins we had a standing appointment it was a high-risk pregnancy she was on bed rest so every Friday we got to go have a sonogram so we got to watch these little guys jostle for position in the womb we got to see them yawn. we got to see their personality start to come out and we had a sonogram date every Friday and we go do that and then we cheat and go out to eat which we weren't supposed to do but we did it anyway but Rebecca didn't have the advantage of any of those things All she knew is, all of this hurts right now. I don't understand. She didn't realize she had twins. So she, it says in verse 22, she went to inquire the Lord. She goes to pray. And God answered her with this oracle. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples within you that will be divided. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. These two sons will become two tribes which will become two nations which will be at war and in conflict with one another. And one is gonna be stronger than the other and the younger is actually going to be the dominant one over the older. Now, more on this later, but Paul actually refers to this in Romans chapter nine. And he refers back to God's sovereign election and God's choice and just says, look, there were two twins of one family before they did anything, before they had any personality, before they had any morality, before they had made any choices, God determined what was going to happen through this oracle. And it was not by human will or their personality or their performance, but God himself made a call and he upsets the natural order of their society and works in an unexpected way and says the older is going to serve the younger. Um, It's going to be interesting. We'll get to that later. Another sermon for another day. The verses 24 to 26, thought I'd stir the pot and get you thinking on that. And then we'll come back to that another time. Um, Verse 24 to 26 Here's what's interesting. It says, when the birth was completed, it begins to describe these two twins. Now Esau, it's interesting. He says he was red or earth-toned and very hairy, which doesn't sound like a very attractive child to us, uh, the way that description worked. What it meant in that culture was he had a, a ruddy complexion, and so it actually was a sign of vitality and strength. It wasn't a demeaning or derogative kind of description in the way they thought of kids. It just meant, man, this kid's got a lot of life. This kid's full of vim and vigor and is, is very healthy. And Then the other kid, afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding on or grasping Esau's heel. This little image of what happens in the birth is actually gonna project itself out. That Jacob, the younger, is going to be grabbing for the older and there's going to be this turmoil and it's going to lead to two tribes which is going to lead to two nations and there's going to be this great conflict and all of this is kind of in seed form a projection of what's going to happen in their future. Now Jacob's name had a strong positive message at the beginning. It probably meant something like may God be at your heels or may God be your rear guard backing up, backing you uh, and kind of watching over you from behind. Uh, the, the idea, we might say it this way, is uh, may God may God always have your back. May God protect you, is what Jacob's name initially meant, was something along those lines. But the interesting thing, because of what Jacob does with his life, Jacob is going to work itself out. And he's going to become this deceitful, ambitious, striving guy that manipulates and controls and man, negotiates life at the cost of other people. And what's going to happen is he's going to develop this nickname. His name actually has this kind of two, two different words that are used and they're going to begin to tweak kind of what they call him. And, and his name is going to take on this negative or hostile sense, kind of like a nickname that says um, dogging in other steps or tripping up someone else because the word for heal and the word for deceiver are similar. And so the name begins to get twisted into kind of a nickname that has a negative connotation, not because his parents gave him that, but because of what he did. And so Esau is actually, we get to verse twenty or chapter 27, Esau is going to actually refer to him and he's going, man, is my brother not named right, the deceitful one, and begin to point at this. But we'll get to that next, uh, here in a couple of weeks. Verse 28, here's what's... What's going to be interesting about it is these guys develop a little bit. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the little boy that grabbed hold of the heel and projected this tension that's going to come now we see the ripples of that beginning to move out so you have Isaac and, and Rebecca the the parents that are on opposite sides kind of playing favorites and that rivalry begins to take root now it's interesting in those days just like ours don't we admire people that sort of take take uh, take life by by the horns and run after it that people that pursue life on their own terms, that they're not slaves to convention, they're not going to give up to tradition, they're people of freedom, that they're going to grab hold of life, and they're going to go get what they want, and they're going to do whatever it is they want, and they're going to live in the moment, and they're going to embrace the, the freedom that they've got, and, and take hold of whatever it is that they desire on their own, and don't we, we tend to respect people like that? Like we look at the world, we look at people that, and he's got some drive and he's got some passion and he's got uh, the ability to uh, kind of embrace his natural freedom. That, that was Esau. Esau was this kind of brash, boisterous, impulsive hunter who was strong and I, I often kind of joke that this is where the, the term redneck came from. This red hairy man who was a hunter and just did whatever he wanted and was boisterous and uh, lived in the moment. Um, That's it, not really the root of the word, just FYI. Don't, don't use that in public. It's not really the case. But, but it seems appropriate in a lot of ways. But there's, and so Isaac, it says, man, he loves his courageous son. He loves his hunter, his tough son. He loves his son that runs to God and do these things. But Rebecca, that word but gives us a bit of an ominous tone. Something different happened. There's a rivalry that's at place here. Um, she loved Jacob. And we aren't really told why, but the subtext tells us that, that you think about the oracle that God received about Rebecca, or about, uh, about Jacob and about Esau, the, the, the oracle that God gave to Rebecca, uh, She was told from God that the younger is gonna be the one that is gonna be the stronger, and the older is gonna serve the younger. And just like any protective mother and then her maternal instinct kicks in. She's like, well, if that's what God says, like, I need to orchestrate that and make sure things work, just, work, work themselves out in that way. I need to make sure that God's plans follow it. I need to make sure that my little boy, Jacob, God, that God promised is gonna have this great thing that's gonna happen to him. I've gotta make sure that it works out exactly the way it's supposed to. Ladies, uh, wives, or moms, can I, can I get an amen on that? Can you relate to that at all? Dads, can can you relate to that at all? There's nothing you want more than to make God's plan work out exactly the way it's supposed to for your kids. And there's nothing more painful than when it doesn't. And so we go through life, and I think this is what's happening with Rebecca. Just she's trying to just kind of do this, like, okay, God, I know you're supposed to be in control, but let me just make sure that things stay between the lines and Jacob gets where he wants to get. And so she's preferring Jacob to try to make sure that it happens. Now, Jacob's described as a quiet, uh, as a quiet guy uh, dwelling in tents. This word quiet, uh, it doesn't really mean the way we think of it. It means kind of solid, trustworthy, level-headed. He's not, he's not just kind of, it doesn't mean something that's like soft or shy. It actually means something that's more straightforward and plain spoken. He's sound. In his thinking, and when he's saying he's staying in his tents, he probably he, rather than hunting, he was probably more of a shepherd. He may have been more interested in kind of the economic gain of managing uh, kind of the, the the what's the word I'm looking for the herds and the, the different animals that, that they could create a profit from, rather than just running around and getting individuals um, via a hunt. But all of this really sets up what happens next, and this is where I think the story gets really fu- fascinating. But the hunter actually becomes the hunted. And as I read this next section, I've got, I want you to just think about two questions. When you think about Jacob and Esau, when I read these verses, who has the deepest hunger? Who is the most hungry? And then secondly, who is the most desperate hunter, really, in this story? Who is the deepest hunger and who's the most desperate hunter? Verse 29, once when Jacob was out cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stuff or I'm exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, dude, I'm about to die. What gets my birthright? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So Esau swore it to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and the red stuff stew. And he ate and he drank and he rose and he left, and Esau despised his birthright. Who is the one who is most hungry in this story? It's interesting because Esau is obviously hungry. But here's Esau, the skillful hunter, comes home empty handed. How much do you guys know anyone that hunts? How often do they like to go spend a whole day hunting and come home with nothing? Not very happy. Esau's not, he's he's probably tired, he's frustrated, he's a little bit hangry, but it gives us kind of this holistic picture that here's a guy who has a physical hunger for sure, but he's also emotionally raw after a failed hunt. He's mentally spent after being out all day, he's physically tired from what it is, but he's also, what, what this scene also reveals is he's relationally aloof. He doesn't connect with his brother Jacob, he also doesn't honor his father Isaac. He's also spiritually calloused. He has no regard for the spiritual heritage and the birthright that's his. He doesn't even care about it. He's completely focused on his appetite. The word for give me some of that, feed me that, is gulping down food. He's like, let me gulp down some of that. And he says, red stuff, red stuff. He do not even call it what it is. He's like, just like, I want to gulp some red stuff, red stuff. He's like, he's like this kind of gronk sort of guy. It's just like, me eat red. You know, like that's all he's got. And he just throws it out. You know, and that's about what, he, what he's interesting. It's interesting that this, uh, the descendants of Esau are being be called Edomites. And Edom is very similar to the word for red, Adam. And so that word is going to point to, to the descendants that are going to follow him. Now, on the other side, Jacob. And what does Jacob do? It's interesting because Jacob is actually the hunter in this passage, isn't he? Jacob is setting the trap and he's about to pounce on his prey. And he knows this prayer. He stayed home, and he's watched, and he's waited, and he's probably been scheming for years, and perhaps he knew the oracle from his mom that one day he was going to be the one that is going to come out on top, and maybe he'd been waiting for the time to execute that plan and help God out and make sure it happens, and maybe he'd been kind of scheming and planning and, and, and just waiting for that time when Esau would come home, and Esau would be a little bit hungry because he didn't catch anything, and Esau would be a little vulnerable, and just like you like a hunter prays on the weak, he's ready to just Counts in the moment when the timing is right. I think that's what's happening here. Now, maybe Jacob thought that God's gonna give me this birthright, but I've gotta, I've gotta negotiate it on my own. I gotta make sure that, that God's plan gets executed. And just like my mom has tried to orchestrate things, I've gotta orchestrate things. And, and so he calculates and drives his plan to perfection. And he comes to Esau when Esau's most vulnerable. He says, Esau, give me your birthright. And Esau's like, dude, I'm so hungry. I don't even care about my birthright. And he says, swear it to me because he knew he needed to seal the contract. He needed to get something signed that couldn't be broken. And so when he swears it, it's now something that can't be undone. Do you see how Jacob is controlled and measured in his approach? But he's hungry for the birthright that's his, that's been told that this is going to be mine. And he wants to make sure that the promises of God get come to fruition. It's interesting in verse 34, we see this the way this works out in Esau's life, it says, it's just four verbs if you look at the text. It just says, Esau ate, drank, rose, and left. And he swung by the drive-thru, grabbed a happy meal, and kept going. And the whole process, he lost his spiritual heritage. He lost his future, and he laid it down in order to fill his immediate appetites of what he felt. He's a perfect picture of the person of freedom who lives for the moment. They embrace their natural appetites, but they show no concerns for the cost or for the plan of God or for the trusting of the promises of God. This red man was overcome by his appetite for the red stuff. And it sort of characterizes his life from that point forward. But his brother, the heel grabber, set the trap and overtook his brother and gained the birthright. Do you see how everything's turned in a short story? Who was the desperate hunter in this passage? It wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. Jacob is the one that set the trap and Jacob is the one that grabbed his prey. Now, the interesting thing about this passage um, is the, the entire focus is on the birthright. In fact, birthright, that word is used four different times because it's just flashing going, this is what you need to be paying attention to and wants us to get that. And we don't have anything like birthright in our world, but in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, what they saw was the birthright was that the firstborn son was supposed to inherit a double portion of everything. So he got half of the parents' goods and he got a double portion of all the other kids and he was going to be the one that, that sort of walked into the, the good future that had all of the, the, the possessions of the father. But not just that, he was the one who was set up as sort of the, the leader of the tribe or the big family. He was the one that inherited the spiritual uh, role of leader within that, within that people group. And in Jacob's case, this birthright also meant he was the one that inherited all the promises that Abraham had given to Isaac of land, seed, and blessing. And so Jacob has got it now. He's got the birthright. It's been promised to him it's interesting that Jacob was, in a sense, right to desire the birthright, correct? Like in some ways, at the root level, there's something good in his desires to say, I actually want the thing that God's gonna give. But the way he goes about it is all wrong. And it disrupts and creates a mess of everything. So here's my question for you. Uh, Who's the good guy in this story? Like when you read the story, which one do you wanna be like? Any of you want to be Esau? Any of you want to be Jacob? Like You read the story and you're like, there's no winner. Like There's just a bunch of losers. This is not going well. It doesn't go well for any of these guys. There's no winners in this encounter at all. Uh, on the one hand, Jacob comes away with a, with a birthright, uh, and, but, but neither man really is someone that we want to admire. Esau has no regard for his spiritual heritage. He is willing to throw it all away for a little bit of red soup and stew. Jacob, on the other hand, is this shrewd man who wants the promises of God, but he's doing everything in his own power to upset his family in order to achieve it. And they both end up falling flat. It's interesting that they're both seeking a shortcut, aren't they? That God's given a promise, that God has a plan, and neither one of them wants to wait on the Lord to fulfill his promise. They want to work a shortcut or a workaround to try to manage by themselves their own way into this future. And it ends poorly. Verse 34, though Jacob's not admired, Esau gets the worst of it. Verse 34 says, thus Esau despised his birthright. It's an interesting word. To despise something in, in this language is to treat it as worthless. Or to treat it as treat it with contempt. It's often a word in the scriptures that speaks of uh, treating flippantly the things of God. What it means is he he just did, he didn't value the things of the Lord. He didn't value spiritual things. He didn't value eternal things. He was so focused on feeding his appetite that he immediately gratified whatever he was feeling in the moment and and taking hold of that thing that quenches hunger that he missed out on all the future promises and blessings that he had Esau had no respect for his spiritual heritage by lineage he was the rightful inheritor of the promise of Abraham but he didn't care he just was hungry and wanted to fill his appetite it's interesting that when we're controlled by grasping for immediate gratification of our hunger we often overreact in immature irrational ways don't we you ever see anyone do this in the world they grab hold of something thinking it's going gonna, it's gonna to meet a need in them. They get rid of this spouse and grab another one, thinking that's going to solve the problem. They run from one thing to another and grab a bottle, thinking it's going to get them from one day to the next. They grab from one thing saying, look, I'm just so hungry and my appetite is so full. I just need to embrace my freedom and meet my immediate need without trusting God to bring about the promises and the fulfillment of what he has for them in the future. We all do this. This is how we all live. We overfocus on our appetites and that eventually leads us to undervalue and even despise things of spiritual value. We overreach to get our immediate needs met and we, we undervalue or underreach for the things that are actually most important in life and what God wants to do. It's interesting, Esau actually earns this reputation in the New Testament book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, it says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral, unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And think about the spiritual heritage. No one was set up better than Esau, than someone who was a descendant of Abraham and Isaac. He had every opportunity to grab hold of the good of life and God's blessing. And from a human viewpoint, the birthright rightly belonged to him. But you notice what it says about him? He says, what good is my birthright when I'm so hungry? When my appetites are this big, what good is a birthright to me? He, he didn't value the spiritual heritage and the thing that he had. And we do the same thing. We oftentimes swap our spiritual vitality for a fleeting moment of pleasure or, or release. And we undervalue the things of God and the, thing, the relationship that God wants to have with us because we're chasing after all the things we're grasping and seizing and trying to find a shortcut to take hold of things that will fill the hunger in us rather than trusting God to provide for us. So that's Esau. What about Jacob? In some ways, Jacob's hunger seems better, doesn't it? Like he's at least desiring the good thing. He doesn't despise his birthright. He actually overwants his birthright. He doesn't trust God to provide it, but he's seeking after it. And it's easy when you look at Esau to go, man, that guy made a really dumb decision. Like he, he, he sold out his entire future for a single meal. That's, that's obviously foolish. But what about Jacob? It's interesting that his, his seems better, but perhaps it's actually more insidious it's maybe hidden and harder to discern. It masks itself as something noble and smart. He desires a good thing. I mean, shouldn't we admire that he, he's hungry and his hunger is not just for a meal, but for a birthright? That seems a little bit better. And yet he still has as little faith as Esau does, doesn't he? He's not trusting the Lord. His relationship with the Lord is not uh, something that's driving what it's doing. He's actually missing out on, on, on his opportunity to, to, to lean on the Lord and running after something that he's trying to create a shortcut to achieve in and of himself. As someone said, Jacob possessed an uncommon amount of a common characteristic, ambition. Uh, friends, don't we, don't we oftentimes admire ambition? Like we admire drive in someone. We, uh, us old people look down on kids, we're like, oh, they don't have any gumption today. Like they don't have any drive, they don't have any goals. We need kids that like, get up, go get a job, do something. Like we, we admire people that have a drive and Jacob certainly had a drive but it was a drive that was built solely on self and not a drive that was learning to trust the Lord. And what we're gonna see with Jacob is that he got what he wanted, the birthright, but the way he went about it was such a way that God will not allow his promises to be obtained. And so God's going to send him in a different direction. So who's, who's the one we admire in this passage? It's, it's not Jacob, it's not Esau. So what do we do? Uh, What what are you going to do if if you're going to live this passage out and you want to figure out how to apply it to your own life? Well, here's what I want to do. I want us to to go back to the question I asked us at the beginning. What are you grasping for? When you think about your own life, when you think about your own ability to navigate uh, the world in which we live, what is it that you're striving for, that you're grasping for, taking hold of to try to get the goodness, blessing, significance, and meaning rather than leaning on God and trusting Him? And as we ask that question, do you see how important this question is? This really is the foundation of the Christian life. This is the foundation of the spiritual life that drives everything we do. We need to understand kind of what it is that we, that's driving who we are. So I want to just give you three ways to kind of apply this and, and, and help you kind of move towards maturity in your own life. The first is we have to grow in knowledge of our own messiness. Uh, y'all know life gets messy, right? One of the privileges I have as a pastor is that I get to know a whole lot of you. And can I just say, y'all are beautiful people. Y'all are kind people. You walk in here and you got smiles on your face and you're dressed nicely and uh, you say all the right things. It's like, how are you? I'm good. How was your week? It was good. And and so we come in here and everything looks great. And all I know is, but I also know the messiness. I know the struggles. I know the hurts. I've gotten the texts from you all that say, dude, I don't understand what God's doing right now. I know the stories where you go, I'm not sure what's happening in marriage right now, or I don't know what to do with my kid right now, or I could give you a thousand different stories. We all have these things that are in our life, and life just is messy. And the circumstances of our life are messy, but then we also add our own mess and sin to it, which makes things even messier still. And one of the things that happens when we begin to move towards spiritual maturity is we begin to get more in touch with our own messiness and what's going on in our own life. So let me ask you, what, what are your natural human tendencies? What are you grabbing for stuff to try to make it happen apart from the Lord, to grab the, the good life? Um, sometimes we speak of this as self-knowledge or self-awareness. But as we move towards maturity, we need to grow in this. But there are appetites and momentary pleasures that you and I consider of greater weight than the kingdom of God. We grab hold of things and we fill our appetites and we try to meet our needs and we chase after these things rather than than running after the Lord. It may be attention or sex or success or adventure or the approval of others, but there's a 1,000 or 10,000 other things that we think of as more highly than the birthright that we have as children of God. And so we sell out the birthright and chase and take hold of these other things to try to meet a need, and an appetite that we immediately fill rather than waiting on the Lord to meet us and to give us the goodness He wants to bring us. People shipwreck careers and reputations and families and lives for a momentary satisfaction and sometimes it takes a really dramatic turn but most of the time it's just daily choices that we make where day by day we just we begin to choose a little shortcuts You know, I know God says he's got this, but I think I'm just gonna help him out a little bit. I know God says he's gonna bring this around someday, but I think I'm just gonna expedite the process a little bit. Lord maybe needs a little bit of help. And so we try to do things our own way. Friends, what is your own personal red stuff? The stuff that you're willing to sell your birthright for? What's the stuff that you're like, I know my my spiritual heritage, my birthright, my relationship to the Lord's important, but I just wanna fill my appetite with some red stuff that will meet my need right now and fill my hunger. We all have those things we chase. We need to become more aware of our own messiness. Secondly, we need to learn to lean on God in the process and not just grasping the final product of his promises. You know, it's interesting that Jacob actually got what he wanted, right? But you know, as we, as we walk through the rest of this story, what we're gonna see is that Jacob got the birthright, but he can't actually enjoy it because it's going to fragment his relationship with his brother. It's going to fragment his relationship with his parents. He's going to actually end up having to flee home because his brother's going to eventually try to, uh, he's going to fear for his own life, that his brother's going to try to take his life, which means he's going to become separated from his father. He's not going to get to see his mother. He's going to to go off to a foreign land and start over completely. And so everything he wanted, this spiritual heritage, this birthright, this legacy, everything he grasped for, he gets it, but he can't enjoy it. Because of the process and the way he went about obtaining the promises of God. And God will not allow his promises to be obtained that way. So there's this gap. I went through years ago this training in uh, in learning how to do mediation and conflict resolution. And one of the things we learned about was the importance of process satisfaction and product satisfaction. that that when you're working with different people and you're trying to work through these things, you can eventually get to the right product where everyone, all parties agree, this is a reasonable outcome and this is a worthwhile way of seeing it. And so we have the right product, but if the process in getting there was so miserable that you get to the end and you don't care about the product, that no one ends satisfied. Everyone ends up unhappy. You have to have not just the outcome you want, but you have to have a process that gets you there. So, friends, we have to learn to lean on God in the process, trusting Him, waiting for Him, allowing Him to eventually fulfill His promises and bring about the thing that He wants to do in our lives. Lastly, let me give you the third one. We have to discover at a deeper level our need for a Savior in the grace of God. When we think about this story, Jacob's not the hero to follow, Esau's not the hero to follow but we still need a hero. And when you look at the scriptures, there is a hero that's, that's ours. His name is Jesus. God sent his only son to be our rescuer. And we have to discover as part of our move towards maturity, our level, our, our need for a savior in the grace of God. And what we see in this and every story in the Bible is that we need a savior who's very different from Jacob and Esau. We need a, a savior who's not like us. We need a Savior who did not regard his position as something to be grasped and sought, but instead gave up his birthright. We need a Savior who did not grasp to fill his hunger, but emptied himself and sacrificed to provide for other people. We need a Savior who did not view others as transactions for using and abusing to get what he wants, but a Savior who knelt down and served and washed the feet of others. We need a Savior who who did not sell out his birthright for immediate gratification, but a savior who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and gave his life in order to redeem ours. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not Jacob. It's not Esau. We need a savior that's greater than both of them, but we all need a savior. And the good news of the gospel is that you, friend, are more sinful and messy than you ever imagined but you're also more loved and sought after by God than you ever dreamed possible. What we'll see in the series is there is a relentless grace of God that seeks you and chases you and will not let you go until you have learned to lean on him and limp towards home by his grace. Walk with him. Let me pray with us. Father, I pray that you would make your relentless grace come to life in us through this series that as we look at Jacob, that we might see it as a mirror that reflects back to us the ways in which we grasp and cling and strive by self for the goodness that you want to give to us. Father, would you help us learn to lean on you in all of life for your glory and for our good by your relentless grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.